Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Jim Douglas. A little old man sitting in a, in a retirement home, sitting in the cafe, and the, uh, he's just sitting there eating his lunch, and he noticed that there was a, a lady there seated across the cafeteria from him, and, and she was just staring at him, just staring at him. And he'd take a bite of food, and he'd look back up, and she's just sitting there staring at him. He'd look away and look to the windows and look back, and she's just sitting there staring at him. Well, this happened for all during the meal, and he finally, when he finished his meal, he got up and took his tray over and discarded it where it should have been. And he just got bold and walked right over to her and said, ma'am, I've noticed, I can't help but notice over the last half hour I was sitting there eating that you were just sitting there staring at me. Why were you staring at me? She said, well, I declare you look just like my third husband. He said, your third husband? Good heavens, how many times have you been married? She said, twice. <laughs> she had big plans for him. <laughs> And God has big plans for you and me. Uh, John chapter 21 is an epilogue, an epilogue or an addendum, if you will. Um, the gospel of John actually ends in John chapter 20. If you look up at verses 30 and 31, you can see that because John gives us a purpose statement. It says, therefore, many other Signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you might, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John chapter 21 is an epilogue or an addendum to that. Uh, and it is there that we wish to look today. Um, we'll just kind of walk through briefly the first 14 verses to set the context because that's very, very important. There are some wonderful truths that are exposed in the first 14 verses, but they're there to lead you up to the main thrust of the text, which is verses 15 through 17. So John chapter 21, verse 1, and I'm reading from the NAS, so if you have a different translation, just follow along. So after these things, Jesus manifested himself or literally, literally made himself visible is what that means. You see, this is a post-resurrection account of Jesus. And if you want to know what Jesus is checking up on in this age, in the church age, then study carefully the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus Christ. And this is one of those. And one of the things that he did after the resurrection was that he would pop in and out of visibility. They would be sitting, talking in a room, 
the disciples because they were shut in, the Bible tells us, many times because they had just seen their Savior, their Master, die horribly by crucifixion, and they were concerned that they may be next. (laughs) So they were in hiding, quite frankly, shut in, the Bible tells us, and they'd be sitting there talking, and suddenly Jesus would appear right there. Well, if Tex and I are sitting here talking and Jesus appears right there, I ain't talking to Tex anymore. <laughs> we, we have little interest left here. <laughs> okay. And, and, and then just as quickly, he'd be gone. And what he was teaching them was that he was as, just as much present with them when they could not see him as he was when they could see him. And that is true today. He is just as present with us this morning as if he were materialized right there between me and Tex. Right here, this morning. He's present. And this is one of those occasions that he manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, some of your translations may say. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter. Now, remember that... Men, all through the Gospels, many times he's called Simon, many times he's called Peter. Sometimes both names are used. And when both names are used, it's normally a warning that he's going to act out of the flesh. See, Simon is his fleshly name. Peter, Stone, is the name that Jesus gave him. And so when you see both names used, it's usually a warning that he's probably going to act out of the flesh. He could go either way, and, and this is no exception. Simon, Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, which simply means the twin. He was somebody's twin. Nathaniel of of Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Now, how many is that? Anybody take note of how many men that was? How many? Seven? Seven. Seven. Seven men. Seven disciples, seven apostles, seven of the most influential men this world has ever known were involved in this story. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel, Canaan of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And you can't see this in an English translation, but the word he used means I'm going fishing and fishing and fishing and fishing and fishing, and I'm never coming back. I'm bailing out of this. I'm done with this. I'm going to go back to something I know, our, my comfort zone. We, we like our comfort zone. You know, people, people hate change as if it's the devil himself. He said, I'm going back to something I know. I'm going back fishing. And to show you what kind of leader he was, remember he was the overall leader of the 12, they said to him, we will also come with you. You're not leaving us, bailing out on us. We're going with you. They went out and got into the boat, definite article, the boat, no doubt one of the boats that they had previously used in the family fishing business, And that night they caught nothing. Now that in itself is a miracle because the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias is one of the best freshwater fishing holes on the face of the earth, even to this day, even to this day. I mean, it just teems with fish, 
and they were net fishermen, not hook fishermen. So it's amazing that they didn't catch anything that night. If Jesus had allowed them to be successful, we never would have heard of him. Because they were bailing out on him. We never would have heard of him. So he frustrated their fishing efforts that night. Said that night they caught nothing. Now here, get the picture. You have professional fishermen fishing at night, the best time, in the best freshwater fishing hole on the face of this earth, and they caught nothing. Nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Remember what I said? He had the ability to pop in and out of their awareness. Remember the two on the Emmaus Road that walked with him for eight miles? That, that's what that trip was, eight miles. They walked with the Lord that they had lived with for three and, a, or two, three and a half years, and they didn't recognize him at all until he allowed them to. <clears throat> so Jesus said to them, children, actually it's masculine, the word for boys, boys, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. Now, I'm sure since they were fishing for food that they were like a bear with a sore nose that morning. You know, here's this guy up on the shore saying, hey, you got any fish? No. (laughs) And he said to them, well, this is bad. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. Now, you would have expected them to, to have all kind of protest over that. I mean, we're the professional fishermen. We fished all night, and we haven't caught anything. And here's this guy on the shore wanting to direct the fishing. It's amazing that they didn't argue because they didn't know this was the Lord. In the Bible, the right side is the side of approval and authority and power. Jesus sat down at the right hand. Of God. So cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. What a difference it is when Jesus controls the fishing. It's the difference between failure and fullness when he controls the fishing. Therefore, That disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's the author of this gospel, John, he never calls himself by name in his gospel, always that disciple that Jesus loved. He was amazed at Jesus' love for him. You can find that in 1 John chapter 2. He said, what manner of love is this? We don't know anything about love like this. What unearthly, otherworldly kind of love is this that God would take a bunch of rebellious sinners and make us his children? He was amazed by the fact that that Jesus loved him. He always refers to himself as that disciple that Jesus loved. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. So he recognized Jesus. It's no wonder that he did. He was always closest to him. Remember, he's the one that leaned back on Jesus' breast or Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. So he was always close, catching the master's heart, catching the master's mind. So when Simon Peter, they're both names are used, (laughs) heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. You know, that's typical Simon Peter, man. You know, act first, think later. He just dived right in. (laughs) 
<laughs> but the other disciples came in a little boat. They had a, you know, a small boat to get from the ship to the shore, but typical Simon Peter. <clears throat> they came in a little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Verse 9, so when they got out of the, the, on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. A charcoal fire. Keep that in mind. That's pretty important to understand what's happening in this entire passage. Crucially important. A charcoal fire already laid and fish, and actually the word in Greek, the original language that this was written, is the word for a small, one tiny, small, diminutive fish. And remember, we said there were seven hungry men here. And fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish. And this is how it impressed them. More than 20 years later, John still remembered the exact number, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Now, he was reminding them of who he was. Remember, they were there when he fed the multitude with two fishes and five loaves. Same thing, two small, tiny, diminutive fish and five bread cakes. Not loaves like we think of, but bread cakes. And so he recreated that situation to make them aware, acutely aware, that they were in the presence of the Lord. Another miracle. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested or made himself visible to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, did you happen to notice, and I pointed out in verse 9, the type of fire, type of fire, charcoal, charcoal fire. And... <clears throat> it's really, really, really important to understand what this story is all about. In fact, it's the word anthracia um, from which we get our word anthracite. It's a type of coal. And actually, it is not native to that region of the world at all. At all. So why would Jesus be on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that morning making a fire of charcoal? Of all things. I mean, no doubt, driftwood available right there. Charcoal is also difficult to start a fire. You know that. So, why would Jesus be there that day, that particular hour, standing there with a charcoal fire, cooking breakfast for these seven hungry men? Well, charcoal appears one other time in the scriptures, in the New Testament. If you look, hold your place there and drop back to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Verse 18. Bible leaves turning. There's no other sound that sounds like that. 
John chapter 18, verse 18 says, Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Drop over to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Drop down to verse 27. Peter then denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. What must he have thought when he came swimming to shore that morning and he runs up and gives Jesus a big wet hug and... Charcoal has a very, very distinct smell when it burns. You can't miss it. If you've ever smelled charcoal burning, you cannot miss that smell. And we are told that our smell is one of the greatest memory devices that we have. And so when he came swimming to shore that morning and runs up and gives Jesus a big wet hug and the smell of that charcoal hit his nose, it immediately had to take him back to the last place he smelled that in Pilate's hall when he had denied Jesus Christ immediately. Now, every Christian at times comes before the Lord overwhelmed and broken by his awareness of his sinfulness. Every Christian. Every Christian. And if you've never been there, then you're probably not a Christian. That's painful, isn't it? It just happens to be the truth. Because the closer you get to him, the more aware of your sinfulness you will become. Every Christian goes through that. Peter's denial was not merely a spontaneous response, as we sort of tend to believe. We can trace his steps, the steps that got him from his arrogance and insolence and disregard for the word of the Lord to denying Jesus Christ that awful day in Pilate's hall. Let's just trace them quickly. Matthew chapter 26, verse 33. Matthew 26, 33. This was not just a spontaneous thing. He actually stepped this way, took steps to get there. Matthew 26, verse 33. Now, Jesus had just told them that they would all fall away. They would all apostatize temporarily. They would all abandon him. But check out Simon Peter. But Peter said to him, verse 33, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And yet he still persisted. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. 
And, and he was so forceful with it that the other disciples agreed with him. So, well, you know, Peter's a leader. If he says that, then, you know, just they're standing there rocking back and forth in their sandals. Well, Lord, if Peter said that, then it must be true. We won't deny you either. <laughs> so step one in his path toward denial was his insistent boasting. He was boasting. No doubt, he had great confidence in his ability as a Christian. And Christians get that way all the time. Well, you know, I attend Grace Church. There's great teaching there. You know, the doctrine is straight. The doctrine is right. You know, I have my quiet time most days. Um, and, and, you know, I won't fall into horrible things like that. Not me. I'm better than that. <laughs> We've all been there. Now, don't look pious. If you got a halo on, you better let it tilt. In fact, you should take it off and put it in the seat beside you. Because I love to break halos. They're, they're not real. <laughs> they're not real. They're none, they're none of those down here among us, though we try hard to pretend. So his first step toward the path of denial was insistent boasting. Second step. Insubordination. Insubordination. You see there in verse 35 of Matthew 26 that he was pretty insistent that he wasn't going to deny Jesus. Mark 14.31 says that he repeatedly said that. So even though the word of the Lord, the living God, was given to him straight into his face saying, Hey, you are going to do this. You specifically, Simon Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. And yet he still insisted and argued with the Lord. Two words don't belong in the same sentence. No and Lord. They, they don't go together. Anywhere. Anywhere. Step three. Step three on the path of denial was his impotence due to prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Drop down to verse 40 of Matthew 26, and this is the Garden of Gethsemane experience. Now, here is God the Son talking to God the Father, going to talk to God the Father. He takes the disciples with him, and he takes the favorite three even further, Peter, James, and John. They were on the inner circle, and he took them even further into the garden with him, and asked them to watch and pray. And he clearly told them, he said, you need to pray. You need to pray because you know, the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. You need to pray. Okay. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. <laughs> These are the favorite three. Found them sleeping. And said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he came back twice more and found them sleep again. Twice more. Found them sleep again. So <clears throat> one of the steps toward Peter's failure is he failed to consult the Lord. He didn't feel the need to pray. No doubt, again, he was confident in his ability as a believer. And we all get there. 
Man, we all get there. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let he who stands take heed lest he fall. We all are capable of that. Every last one of us. I don't care who you are. Prayerlessness. The Savior had called him to pray, and they selfishly, self-confidently trusted their own judgment above the Lord's, and they were indifferent to his call to prayer. Step four, impulsiveness. You can find that down about verse 51. His fourth step toward denial was his independent, self-generated impulsiveness. He didn't sense any need to ask the Lord for advice, so when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and it was a cohort, which was probably about 600 soldiers, and then they had the temple police, the temple guards there also, and when they came, Peter pulls out a sword and cut off the slave's ear. Now, he was not a skilled swordsman. He was probably aiming for his head. Okay? And the guy ducked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but he cuts off the guy's ear, taking matters into his own hands. No doubt feeling confident because the Lord was close, even though he didn't consult him. But the Lord was close, close by. He's always there. But he didn't consult him. Okay, so he took matters into his own hands, no doubt feeling invincible because he had just seen at the word of Jesus the whole cohort of soldiers fall down. Man, you wonder what they were thinking. Good Lord, how could you go through with that after he spoke and you all fell down? And he spoke again and you all fell down? You know, you might want to leave that guy alone. Say, you know, we couldn't get him. But no doubt feeling invincible because he was close to the Lord and he heard the Lord speak and the, and the soldiers all fall down. So he's like, well, you know, if I get in trouble, he's going to rescue me anyway, so let's get busy. Let's get with this. That's, that's slang from the hood for some of you. Uh, <laughs> I have to translate occasionally. <laughs> let's get with this. It was not his plan that his master be harmed or taken even though Jesus had repeatedly told them what had to happen, his purpose for coming. So his impulsiveness was one of the steps. And finally, his insolence. His insolence. He followed Jesus into the courtyard that night, even though he knew The potential was there for him to be tested beyond what he was able. We do that. We do that. And yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that the Lord will not allow us to be tested above that which we are able. And 2 Peter 2.9 tells us that God rescues the godly from temptation, but that does not apply to willful, stubborn disobedience. And that's where he was. Doesn't apply. So don't roll back on God and say, well, you know, he said that he, you go into a situation where you know, you know, and every one of us has one of those Achilles heel, I call it. You have something that you know can get you. There's something. I don't care what it is. I'm not going to tell you what mine is. That's none of your business. But (laughs) but I'm telling you, everybody has one, whether you want to admit it or not, something that can get you. 
And when you put yourself in that situation where that something is that you know can get you, that's willful, stubborn disobedience, and don't expect God to rescue you from that. It's not going to happen. And we all have them. So he put himself in that position. You know, Jesus had already told him over and over, to pray, beware. In fact, in Luke 22, he said, Simon, Satan, in fact, he called his name twice. Simon, Simon. Be careful when God calls your name twice. He said, Satan desires to have you, to sift you as wheat. So he was forewarned. He said, but I prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you turn, strengthen the brethren because they've got problems too. But he totally ignored that in prayerlessness and found himself where he should not have been. Should not have been. Now, had Jesus commanded Peter to physically stand beside him and defend him at all costs, he probably could have handled that. He probably had mapped out a strategy for that. He probably had even mapped out a strategy for defending himself against the guards after he followed Christ into Pilate's hall. Probably had a strategy for that. You know, he had planned for certain things according to his awareness. But he stumbled when a much less dangerous demand was made of him. He hadn't planned for the slave girl to come alongside that night and say, weren't you? Yeah, you. I know that was you. <laughs> he, hadn't, he wasn't ready for that. You see, you can plan your action, but you can't plan your reaction. And your reaction is normally a much better measure of who you really are. Who you really are. Comes out when you have to react. And because of his self-confidence, he wasn't ready for the blindside attack. The blindside attack that morning. So this entire event, back to John 21... This entire event was set up by the Lord for one man. For one man. For Simon Peter. And so when he came up out of the water onto the shore that morning and smelled the odor of charcoal burning, what must he have thought? What must he have thought? Jesus reconstructed before their eyes and their minds that morning the miraculous feeding of the great multitudes with the fish and the loaves. But his main purpose was to isolate Simon Peter, his key leader. Key leader. They followed Peter. He was the leader of the twelve, the overall leader. When Jesus wasn't there, he was the guy. And he reminded him very vividly of his shameful denial. And he also, also brought him back and restored him that morning. Now, verse 15 of John chapter 21. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
he said to him, feed my lambs. Now notice that Jesus deliberately refused to use the name that he had given Simon Peter. Deliberately used his old fleshly name, Simon. And in that in itself was, had to be a great rebuke for Simon Peter. Because Jesus had given him that name, Peter, Stone, Stone. And he may have given him that name to cause him to rise to that name. Because prior to that, Simon Peter was anything but solid. He was more shifting sand than a stone. But Jesus refused to use the name that he had given him. And that was a rebuke of the most severity, the most severe character, a, a rebuke. Also, it reminded him of his shameful denial of Jesus Christ. Now, notice something else that you probably can't see in an English translation. Two different words for love are used here. When he said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter answered, you know I love you. Two different words for love are used. The word Jesus used was the word agape, is the word for high, holy, self-giving, self-sacrificing, unconditional love, God's kind of love. But the word Peter used in his response, philos, was actually the word for brotherly love, in which we get our word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It was the word for warm affection, brotherly love. Jesus said, Simon, do you love me unconditionally with God's kind of love? And he said, you know, Lord, I like you. <laughs> I like you. And he said, you know I like you. So he was deferring to Jesus' omniscience, knowing his heart, that he could not respond affirmatively to Jesus' question on the basis on which it was asked. He couldn't, he couldn't do that. God's looking right through him, and he knows. He knows. So he said, Lord, you know I like you. So at that point, the question begs, what is love? What is love? What is love? Well, that's a word that's really taken a beating in our society. Really taken a beating in our society. But Simon Peter went as far as he felt he could go because he knew God knew the truth. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Notice this time Jesus dropped all comparisons. At first he said, do you love me more than these? The second time he dropped the comparison says, do you love me? Do you even love me? He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. And all things is major emphasis in the text in the original language. You know all things. You know that I like you. Interesting enough, the third time, Jesus used the same word Simon did. Philos, he said, do you even like me? Now, can you imagine that? Do you even like me? 
He said, Lord, you know all things. You know I like you. <laughs> you know I like you. He said, then do something about it. Peter got the message. He had denied Jesus three times, and Jesus had given him a threefold inquisition to remind him of his failure and also to restore him. To restore him. I mean, this is wonderful, wonderful grace here. Grace in action. You know, few saints have fallen as far as Simon Peter in denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Few saints have. And we should take great comfort and great hope in the fact that God still loves us and he still wants us and he still cares for us and he still wants to use us in spite of our failures. Last time I checked, we're probably going to stumble most of the way home. Now, for those of you that have halos, <laughs> I know you think you got it all together. If you ever got it all together, you could not carry it. <laughs> So no one's immune. There are no exclusions, no exceptions. No one is left out. Now, <clears throat> on the third question, Jesus displayed his incredible love by using the same word that Simon did for love, the word for natural affection. That's wonderful, wonderful grace. Tremendous grace. And Jesus accepts his testimony. He accepted him. You can only come to God from where you are. And Jesus accepted that. And that is wonderful news. Wonderful news. You can only come to God from where you are, wherever that is, wherever that is. Some of you have been Christians for many, many years, like myself. But you can only come to God from where you are. Some of you have only been Christians for a short period of time, and some of you in a crowd this size are not Christian at all. I'm not naive. Some are not believers at all. But you can only come to God from where you are, and wherever that is is fine with Him. Just come to Him. Just come. In this beautiful story, we can detect the crucial question of Christian discipleship. Note that Jesus did not say, Simon, are you sorry for what you did? Do you admire me? Have you wept enough? Have you repented enough? Do you promise to be faithful in the future? You know, notice he didn't say any of those things. You know, we do that. We'll say, I forgive you. But what we really mean is we're going to put you on probation. You know, we're going to check you out for a little while here. And then, you know, if you pass muster, then then uh, <laughs> we'll take you back into our confidence again. Well, God isn't that way. God forgives, man doesn't. God isn't that way. And the only way you can is with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. That's the only way you can truly forgive somebody. It really is. He poured every possible point of inquiry into just one question. Do you love me? Nothing else matters until that question is answered to the Lord. Do you love me? Unconditionally, do you love me? And this is the crucial question of Christian discipleship. Do you really love Jesus? Really? Do you really love Jesus? 
Well, let's explore that a little bit. First, this is a deeply personal question, personal and private, intensely personal. It's personal in that it was asked, addressed to just one person, Simon Peter. Remember, this is one that Jesus had handpicked. This was his overall leader. This was the one that he counted on to lead the others after he was gone. So it was a deeply, deeply personal question. He was one of the favorite three, Peter, James, and John, who were always the inner circle. They were always allowed to be somewhere where the others weren't many, many times. And he's the overall leader. And Jesus asked him this deeply personal and private question, do you love me? Would he not ask us the same thing today? Would he not ask us that exact same question? No other question, no other profession is um, as important to Jesus until you've answered this one. Do you love me? He's not concerned with your morality. Not at all. A lot of folks are highly moral. Strutting their way toward hell and think they're too good to go. (laughs) highly, highly moral. I mean, some of the most moral folks you've ever met, highly moral people. Hello, scribes and Pharisees, highly moral people. They crucified the Son of God and lifted up their eyes in hell. He's not concerned with your morality. He's not concerned with your profession. He's not concerned with your Bible study. He's not concerned with your church attendance. He's not concerned with anything else until you answer this question. Do you love me? You know, a few weeks ago, pastor led us in a discussion of the greatest commandment, those of you that were here. And you remember what that was. Thou shalt love King James. (laughs) Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And we had a a very spirited discussion that morning of the greatest commandment. Well, Jesus is defining that here for us. This is defined. He said, if you love me, do something about it. It is no proof of love for a man that you go to his house and eat his food. Say, but I'm here Wednesdays, and I'm here, you know, I'm going to be here on Monday, you know, for the men's meeting, and and I'm here on Sunday, and there's no proof of love to a man that you go to his house and eat his food. None whatsoever. We've fed thousands over the years at our house, and I'm sure that a whole gang of them didn't love me. (laughs) (laughs) that's no proof of love. He said, if you love me, do something about it. You see, love is something you do. Love is something you do. Love is not a feeling that you feel when you feel a feeling that you never felt before. Love is not something you say. Love is something you do. For God so loved the world that he did something about it. I mean, man, we get busy talking about, oh, how I love Jesus. It's one of those hymns, Jay. Uh, (laughs) We get busy proclaiming that love for Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. But what are you doing about it? Boy, it's quiet in here now. 
<laughs> so this is a deeply personal question that you must face. Suppose Jesus came to you today in fleshly form and stood in front of you and put his hands on your knees where you sit and looked deeply into your eyes and said, do you love me? And it didn't stop there. He did it a second time. And then the third time he said, do you even like me? That's what happened here. That's not an exaggeration at all. That's exactly what happened in this story. He was training his key man, his overall leader. He could not allow slouchy, sloppy thought. You know, most Christians go to church to feel. I just want to feel. Praise the Lord. You know, that music was tight. (laughs) Do I need to define tight? That's good, really good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But but you know, most Christians want to go to church to feel. Be blessed. Your emotions are the most shallow part of you. You know, I teach in Dauphin County Prison, and one of the things I tell the guys, you know, when somebody comes up and they're 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 jumping up and down and they just want to be blessed and just want to feel, you know, just want to feel, then you hit them in the nose and say, Now how do you feel? I know, <laughs> I know, pray for me. Uh, <laughs> your feelings are the most shallow part of you. There's nothing in this book designed to make you feel good. Some of it does, praise the Lord, but that's not its design. Not its designed at all. So it's a deeply personal question and private question. He says, do you really love me? Secondly, it's a preferential question. This question calls for a clear preference to be made, a choice. Notice in his first inquiry, he said, do you love me more than these? Now, we're not told what he was referring to at that point, so it behooves us to explore the possibilities when he said more than these. You know, he may have meant, do you love me more than these men? at which time he would have pointed to the other six men that morning and say, do you love me more than these men love me? It's quite possible. Quite possible. It's a very strong possibility. It meant that Jesus Christ must be preeminent and first in your relationships regardless of those relationships. He must be first. Preeminent. Do you love Jesus more than you do your wife? More than you do your parents? More than you do your children? It's a sobering question. If you be honest before God, and he knows, we don't know, but he knows. He knows the answer to that. So you may as well be honest with him. If you like him, tell him you like him. Because he knows anyway. Luke 24, 26 says from the Amplified Bible, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother in the sense of indifference or to or relative disregard for them in comparison with his attitude toward God, and likewise his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
So compared to your love for Jesus, in terms of the way you love him, by comparison, you don't love anyone else. Man, that's strong. That's what he's saying. Well, he's knocking the pins out from under all of us, Roger. <laughs> that's exactly what he's saying. Calls for a clear choice. You know, Ellis Fuller, a great preacher of the past, proposed to his wife by telling her that he can only offer her second place in his life. Hans, would that have flown with you? <laughs> That's the way he proposed to his wife. He said, I can only offer you second place because first place belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And she went away and had to think about that. <laughs> and she came back and accepted his proposal by saying that the safest place for any woman is to be in the arms of a man who places Jesus first. And they've been married for the last 50 years or so. Strong brother, strong brother. So Jesus could have intended, do you love me more than these other people? And that's a strong possibility. Then he could have meant, do you love me more than these people love me? You know, we get busy comparing ourselves among ourselves, and Paul says that that's not wise, but we do. You know, I believe I love Jesus more than you. <laughs> so he could have meant, do you love me more than these people love me? And after all, Simon Peter had, had just boldly and boastfully professed that even if all of them fall away. Lord, I won't, I won't fall away. I won't deny you. I'll be here. I got your back. I'm here. I'm with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but are you as good as your profession? Most of us aren't. And I'll tell you, if you are as good as your profession, then probably your profession is not Christian enough. Hello. If you're as good as your profession... There's still a lot of work to be done, <laughs> a lot of flesh there. Or Jesus could have meant, do you love me more than these things? In that case, he would have gestured toward the, the boat and the fish and the nets, etc., etc. Do you love me more than these things? You know, Simon Peter had just shown a preference for those things. He said, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I know. I'm out of here. He had just shown a preference for those things and went back. So Jesus may have meant, do you love me more than these things? What about you? Do you love Jesus more than stuff? Stuff. You know? Or do you have that attitude, well, you know, I just want to get mine. I don't know what mine is. <laughs> but I just want to get mine. We have that ent entitlement mentality, especially in these United States. Big entitlement mentality. Do you love Jesus more than stuff, than things? Do you love him more than your habits? Do you love him more than your beliefs? In other words, if you have a belief that's contrary to this book, are you willing to concede that belief in favor of what God says is the truth? That's a big one. That's a big one. Do you love him more than your comfort, your convenience, your safety? All of those are possibilities that Jesus may have meant here in this text. 
We have to be really careful here. So Jesus asked, do you prefer me before anything or anyone? Thirdly, it's a practical question, a deeply practical question. When Simon said three times, you know, Lord, I like you, Jesus didn't rebuke him. Notice he didn't rebuke him. He accepted his profession. You can only come to Jesus from where you are. Jesus simply said, Simon, if you do like me, prove it. Do something about it. What are you doing about it? Do something. Some years ago, a Presbyterian pastor named Fred Speakman wrote a book entitled Love is Something You Do. It's not something you say. It's not something you feel. It's not something you experience. It's something you do. And one of the great humorists picked it up and said, life is one full thing after another and love is two full things after each other. (laughs) But the proof of love is something you do. Something you do. You know, today we are bombarded through our media, through every possible media, with that word. And I am firmly convinced that, that nine out of ten people in these United States don't have a clue what that word means. Don't have a clue. But we're bombarded by it. And we're, you know, there are songs about it. There are books about it. I mean, you hear speeches about it. But how many of them match John 3.16, God's unconditional, self-sacrificing love? You see, you are more likely to act your way into deeper love than you are to feel your way into loving action. I want to say that again because I don't want you to escape it or it you. You are more likely to act your way into deeper love than you are to feel your way into loving action. Love is something you do. In John 14, 21, Jesus said, He that hath my commandments and keeps them... He it is that loves me. So feed my sheep, Simon. You say you love me. You say you like me. Do something about it. Do something about it. If you really love Jesus, you'll give your life to the things he loves. You'll give your life to people. For God so loved the world. You'll give your life to the church. For God gave himself for the church. Not the building, for the people. You'll give your life to prayer. you give your life to His Word. If you really love Jesus, you'll give your life to those things. Proof of that love. So this was a deeply practical question. You'll prove your love in very practical ways, just as you do with your wife, your husband, your children, your parents. You'll prove your love in practical ways. James said, show me your faith. And I'll show you my faith by my works. Good works don't produce salvation. They are the evidence of salvation. Proof that your salvation is genuine. Fourth, and finally, this is a priority question. The priority of life. It's in this question. You see... There are two reasons for that. One is what we are is determined by what we love. What we are is determined by what we love. That is a fact. You can take that one and put it in the bank. What you are is determined by what you love. 
I mean, how many have seen people that live together many, many years, a husband and wife, and they kind of start to look like each other? I don't want you to look like me, girl. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. They start to kind of have the same mannerisms and, you know, one will reach out the hand and the other hand has already come there to meet it. It just happens. The second reason that's important is whatever you love, you will become like. You will become like. If you love Jesus progressively in character, you will become like him. Come like him. And the other reason it's important is because that question determines your eternal destiny. Determines where you'll spend eternity if you're unsaved. And it determines what your reward will be in heaven if you are saved. Because there'll be different levels of reward in heaven. Oh no, we don't all, we're not all gonna have the same bank account. Uh-uh. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. Read for yourself 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 sometime. Very, very clear that will we Christians will be at the judgment seat of Christ and we will be tried not according to our sin. Jesus already paid for that. Our work will be tried to determine whether it was good or worthless to the Lord. And that which is worthless, the Bible tells us, will burn up. Zip. But Lord, I sang in the choir. Zip. (laughs) But Lord, we built a great church. Zip. You know, a lot of Christians be on the other side smelling like smoke, like they've been through a fire sale. (laughs) because those things that they considered good works burned up because they weren't in accordance with the mandate of the master. You see, the first conspicuous outcome of faith is love. The fruit of the Spirit, first one, love. And the other eight just may be extensions of that. Love is first. Love. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Maranatha, accursed. Accursed. Those that don't love the Lord Jesus Christ are accursed. That's strong. Dramatic statement. If God is God, and if God is holy, and if God is truly and really love... And if God is to maintain moral government in the universe, and all of those are true, then he simply must enforce his righteousness. He must enforce his just laws. This means that anyone who opposes these laws or lives sinfully outside them is an enemy to him. That's the word of God. If God tolerated that, he would cease to be God. He would destroy himself. It's not part of his character, not part of his nature. So if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And the second word says, our Lord will come, or the Lord is coming. There will not be anyone in heaven who did not fall in love with Jesus here. They won't be there. You'd be out of place. You'd be definitely out of place. 
God wouldn't want that. Now, someone will protest, doesn't that put too much stress on love and not enough on faith? Well, yes, we are saved by grace through faith alone, plus nothing, plus anything else is cultic. We are saved by grace through faith. But when faith is properly activated in a man's life or a woman's life, then it automatically generates the right response. Romans chapter 5 says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. So if you don't have the love of God in your heart, you don't belong to him. It's clearly what it says. I'm not the author. I'm glad of that. <laughs> glad of that. So when faith is truly exercised in the repentant sinner's heart, the loving Christ actually enters that heart. And from that moment on, God has poured his love out in that believer's heart. So the question, do you really love Jesus Christ, is the crucial question for Christian discipleship, Christian devotion, Christian dedication. It is a question that governs your entire eternity and reward. And reward. So let me ask two final questions. How many people do you know? Now think about this carefully. Don't answer. <laughs> How many people do you know who have convinced you that they really love Jesus Christ with a deep, personal, preferential, practical love? How many? Second question. How many people do you suppose that you have convinced that you really love Jesus Christ with a deep, rich, personal love, an obvious, preferential love, and a steady, practical love? Sobering thoughts. So the crucial question of Christian discipleship, do you really, really love Jesus? And if you do, there should be evidence of that. Now, please don't see this as merely a means, a way to end our morning service. You know, we're like, boy, glad that's over. Good Lord. But <laughs> oh, I know us. You know, the turkey's on a timer here. Uh, don't, <laughs> don't see it that way. This is a time to do business with God. I'm going to ask if the elders would stand here just a minute. Elders, please. I think Jerry's out over with the kids, but the elders. Get a look at these men. These men are well equipped to counsel you from God's word. If they're at the the close of this service, if you need to talk to somebody about the Word of God, if you need to talk to somebody about salvation, if you need to talk to somebody about anything that has to do with your eternity or your service, then seek out one of these men. They'd be more than happy, and they're well, well, well qualified to counsel with you from God's Word. If you need to do business with God, now's the time to do business with God. Let's stand.